The Lord be with you. Welcome back to Home Worship on this strange week. It seems that a pandemic wasn't quite enough. Uh, unrest over racism and injustice wasn't quite enough. Trying to figure out how to open schools this year wasn't quite enough. What we really needed was a hurricane and an extended, prolonged power outage just to cap things off, because why not? I hope you're faring well. At the church here, we still don't have power as of Friday afternoon when we're recording, uh, but we're out here, so things could be a lot worse than they are. We're continuing to make our way through Ruth, so I hope you find a way to watch this sooner or later. We come to Ruth 3 today, and we come to another great chapter of the story. Before we get started and dig a little deeper, though, I want to invite you to pause this video and do two things. The first is to just reflect on or talk about how you've taken the invitation to show Hesed in the last week. I'm sure you've had opportunities, so how have you done? When you're done with that, recap the story on Ruth 1 and 2 and catch back up to where we are. When you're done with both of those things, jump back in and we'll see you in a minute. So how'd you do? In Ruth 1, we find the story of the family of Elimelech. They leave Bethlehem and go to Moab, a foreign nation, to find refuge from a famine. Elimelech soon dies. His sons, Malon and Kilion, who have married Moabite women, also die, leaving their wives childless. And their mother, Naomi, who now has nothing, decides to return to Bethlehem, hearing the famine is now over. She urges her daughters-in-law to stay behind with their families. She prays that the Lord would bless them and provide them with rest and security in the homes of new husbands. And one of them does stay, but the other, Ruth, accompanies her on the journey, vowing her hesed, loyalty, faithfulness, steadfast love, says, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. As they arrive in Bethlehem, Naomi announces she is now Mara, which means bitter, for the Lord has returned her empty. As chapter 2 opens up, Ruth decides they need some food. So she goes out gleaning in one of the fields, and she just so happens to end up in a field belonging to a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be a close relative of her deceased father-in-law, Elimelech. Boaz notices Ruth. He's heard the stories of her steadfast love to Naomi, and so he prays that God would reward her richly, this God under whose wings she has come to take refuge. And then he gives her an abundance of grain and allows her to stay on, gleaning in his field throughout the rest of the harvest. And when Naomi finds out about Ruth's chance meeting with Boaz and his generosity, her hope is rekindled as she thinks this close relative, this kinsman redeemer, may just be God's way of showing faithfulness to Ruth and Naomi and their deceased husbands, that God may be making a way. Ruth stays in Boaz's fields throughout the harvest, and that's where scene two closes. So before we open up chapter three today, I wanna to invite you to pray with me as we open the word. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find freedom and in your way that we find peace. So come and shine your light upon us. 
that we may see your truth and learn to follow in your ways of freedom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book we love. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I seek security for you so that things might go well for you? Now isn't Boaz, whose young women you were with, our relative? Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. You should bathe, put on some perfume, wear nice clothes, and then go down to the threshing floor. Don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he is lying. Then go, uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Ruth replied to her, I'll do everything you are telling me. So she went down to the threshing floor, and she did everything just as her mother-in-law had ordered. Boaz ate and drank, and he was in a good mood. He went to lie down by the edge of the grain pile, and then she quietly approached, uncovered his legs, and lay down. During the middle of the night, the man shuddered and turned over, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. She replied, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread out your robe over your servant, because you are a redeemer. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've acted even more faithfully than you did at first. You haven't gone after rich or poor young men. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do everything you are asking. Indeed, my people, all who are at the gate, know that you are a woman of worth. Now, therefore, it's certainly true that I'm a redeemer. But there's a redeemer who's a closer relative than I am. Stay the night. And in the morning, if he'll redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I myself will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning. Then she got up before one person could recognize another, for he'd said no one should know that the woman came to the threshing floor. He said, bring the cloak that you have on and hold it out. And she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and placed it upon her. Then she went into town. She came to her mother-in-law, who said, How are you, my daughter? And Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, He gave me these six measures of barley, for he said to me, Don't go away empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Sit tight, my daughter, Naomi replied, until you know how it turns out. The man won't rest until he resolves the matter today. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. One of the really important things to learn about these stories in the Old Testament is that the authors aren't just historians. They're not just storytellers. They're theologians. They're trying to tell us something about God and God's ways in the stories they tell and in the ways they tell them. We would be wise to pay attention because these lessons are often far more clear in narrative than in rational arguments. This story, for instance, illustrates beautifully and clearly a theological question that has been argued about for millennia. 
If God is sovereign, how can we say that humans have free will? If God is sovereign over all things and controls everything, then how do humans have any choice whatsoever in what happens? And why does anything we do matter in the end if God is orchestrating everything? If, as we claim in the Heidelberg Catechism, not a hair can fall from our heads without the will of our Father in heaven, then what good does anything I do do? God is in control. Theologians have argued on and on about this question, and Christians have often fallen on one side or the other. Is it that God is in control of everything, and therefore what we do doesn't matter much? Or is God kind of an absentee landlord, and everything that needs to be done is up to us? Maybe some examples will help. Marxism tends to fall off on the second side. It begins with a beautiful vision of equality and fairness, that there shouldn't be this stark divide between the rich and the poor. All should have equal access to opportunity and the means of production. But then the Marxists set out to establish their utopian vision by their own means and by whatever means necessary. Marx even went so far as to say religion is just an opiate for the masses. It's just a distraction from what really is important, what we should really be paying attention to and doing. Marxism's been tried in many places, many times, most continents, and every single time it has pretty much the same results. Disaster. Millions of people generally die either from starvation or from violence as Marxists take things into their own hands to try to execute a utopian vision of their own. They're not the only ones that fall off on this side, though. There are too many stories of megachurch pastors who fall from grace because they forget that it's not all about them. Falling off on the other side, though, is just as dangerous. Over here, there are Christians who say, let go and let God, by which they mean God is in control, so just sit back and let God accomplish it all. I think of the parable of the man who heard of the coming storm that he should evacuate and said, no, God will save me. As the rains begin, a police officer comes by and urges him to evacuate, and he says, no thanks, God will save me. As the waters begin to rise, a boat comes trying to rescue him. He says, no thanks, God will save me. On his roof, with the floodwaters rising, a helicopter comes by, throws down a ladder, and says, climb on. And he says, no thanks, God will save me. He drowns. And he gets to heaven and storms off to find God and says, I believed you would save me. Where were you? God said, I sent the story on the radio to evacuate. I sent the police officer. I sent the boat. I sent a helicopter. What more do you want? I think, too, of Christians who, in the early days of the pandemic, and some still now, refused to take the advice of scientists or public health experts, believing instead that God would protect them and heal them if they just prayed enough and in the right way. Now, certainly, God can heal miraculously, and God may choose to protect you, but God also gave us brilliant minds to study in great detail all of God's wonderful creation and to understand even microorganisms to the point where we can fight against them and also protect ourselves from them with pretty simple measures. So which is it? Is it 
God who is sovereign and does everything necessary? Or is it us? Well, Ruth offers a third way. One of the many things I love about this story is that it doesn't buy into the dichotomy between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. What's clear throughout the story is that it's Naomi and Ruth and Boaz who are planning and doing everything in the story. And it's what they do that brings them in the end to these wonderful and blessed circumstances they find at the end of chapter 4. But what's also clear in the story is that God is at work in them every step of the way and that they even see their own actions as results of God's faithfulness to them. You know, the book of Ruth is unique because it's the only book in the Bible where every prayer that is offered within it is answered by the end. Every single prayer, if you look closely. And if you look closely, you'll notice too that those prayers are answered by the actions of the other people in the story. That God is in the background, answering prayers, certainly, but that doesn't remove the characters from their own agency and acting within the story. Now, that doesn't mean that it's just a pull-yourselves-up-by-your-bootstraps story, that you need to be the answer to your own prayers. But it does provide us with an example of how God works in the world and in our lives. It starts in this chapter with Naomi. She's waded through the whole harvest, but Boaz has not taken any further steps with Ruth. She had thought with that chance encounter at the beginning of chapter 2, that God was bringing Boaz into the story as Goel, as kinsman-redeemer. But nothing more has happened. She could have chosen to say, well, God has brought us this far, let's trust God to finish the work, and just sat back and waited. But she didn't. She began to make a plan. She began to strategize to take a step out toward where she believed God was leading. Now, a cynical read of the story is that she starts to connive in order to get her daughter-in-law a man. But I think we need to read it as a step out in faithfulness. We'll see more about that later when we talk about Ruth. But one reason already now we can see, that reason is that the prayer Naomi prayed back in chapter 1, verse 8. There she prayed for God to provide Ruth, and at that time also Orpah, to provide for them, that they might find security and rest in the home of a new husband. Orpah left to find that rest on her own, but Ruth stayed. She followed Naomi into a land she didn't know, to seek refuge there under a God she didn't know, and people she had never met. And Naomi now recalls that prayer from the beginning when she asks Ruth at the beginning here of chapter 3, My daughter, shouldn't I seek security for you? That's the same word, security, rest, that Naomi prayed for at the beginning. And what she once prayed for, she now sets in motion plans to accomplish. She steps out, even as she prays, and joins her work to God's work. And Naomi's faith that God is in that work is perhaps no more clear than in how crazy the plan is. 
She tells Ruth to bathe, which was a sort of uh, not regular thing in the ancient world, to put on some perfume, some nicer clothes, to go down to the threshing floor at night where Boaz had been working, wait till he's had plenty to eat and drink, wait till he begins to fall asleep, and then go uncover his feet and lay down. What exactly is Naomi asking Ruth to do? Now, it certainly is the case that in Hebrew, sometimes the word for feet doesn't exactly mean feet, if you know what I mean. It's led some to wonder if Naomi's plan wasn't for Ruth to gussy herself up, go and offer sex to Boaz as a way to entrap him into something more. But that's not the way the narrator tells the story. And that's not the only way we can interpret her actions. Some note that when Boaz awakes, he shudders and then rolls over to find a woman there and suggests maybe uncovering his feet was a way to make sure that he, wouldn't wake, that he would wake up during the night. He'd had quite a bit to drink. He was probably out pretty thoroughly. But by uncovering his feet, he would eventually grow cold and stir. Maybe. Others point out that laying at his feet would have been a customary gesture of subservience. The servant lays at the master's feet. And Ruth does introduce herself as your servant, Ruth. So what is Naomi asking Ruth to do? Well, Naomi herself actually tells Ruth that Boaz will tell her what to do. This is an incredibly calculated risk and one that could go very poorly for Ruth. Boaz could wake up and take offense at the gesture. His honor could be insulted and he could send her away and brand her as a harlot in the eyes of the whole community, at which point she would have no future other than to become a prostitute or starve to death. Or Boaz could wake, find a woman all alone and vulnerable in the dark and take advantage of her. Or someone else could find Ruth there and ruin both of their reputations. Naomi's plan relies upon some things Boaz has hinted about in chapter 2 and upon her belief that God is being faithful in her story. And it's what leads her to take a significant gamble. Maybe it's desperation. What other choice do they have? Maybe it's faith. Maybe it's both. Well, now it's Ruth's turn to act. She does all that her mother-in-law asks her to do. And when Boaz is startled awake, he asks, Who is it? Who's there? And she goes there beyond anything Naomi asked her to do when she replies, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread out your robe over your servant because you are a redeemer. Ruth doesn't wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. She gets into action as well to move toward God's future. And that phrase, spread out your robe over, is another way of saying, marry me. Ruth proposes to Boaz, but what she does is actually even more profound. If you remember back in chapter 2, Ruth is awestruck by Boaz's generosity, and she asks, why have I found such favor in your eyes? And he says, I've heard of your hesed toward your mother-in-law. 
I've heard of your faithfulness, your loyalty, of all that you've done, leaving your homeland behind and coming to seek refuge under the wings of our God. And Boaz prays that this God under whose wings she's taken refuge would reward her richly for her actions. Well, those words for wings, it's the same word as robe here. Boaz had recognized that she has come to take refuge under Yahweh. And so back in chapter 2, Boaz begins to enact God's reward with his own generosity. And Ruth now asks him to finish what he started. That he come to see himself as the very wings of the God under whom she will take refuge. That just as he answered his own prayer by rewarding her with an abundance of grain, by providing safety and refuge in his fields and among his workers, so he might spread his wings over her in marriage. He is, after all, a redeemer. There's that term again, goel kinsman redeemer, a close relative responsible to help in times of trouble by redeeming land, by redeeming kinsmen out of slavery, by avenging a murder, or by marrying a brother's widow to provide offspring and security. Ruth goes way beyond her place culturally to propose marriage to Boaz, to ask him to take up his role as kinsman redeemer, even though he's not exactly required to do so with her. She is not his sister-in-law. She asks, though, for what she needs and asks Boaz to be the answer to his prayers, to Naomi's prayers, and certainly also to her own prayers. And everything there hangs in the balance for a few moments while we wait for Boaz to reply. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have acted more faithfully than you did at first, he says. You could have gone after younger men if you'd just been looking for a husband, but you didn't. And before we get to Boaz's response, this is important. He specifically commends her for acting even more faithfully than she did when she left her nation, her family, her God, and her people behind to come and seek shelter under Naomi's God in Naomi's land. Her actions here are seen by Boaz, by the narrator, and by those who passed this story along and added it to our holy scriptures as faithfulness. She's not just looking for a man. This isn't a rom-com, though we're tempted sometimes to read it like one. She is acting faithfully according to the spirit of God's law. She's coming to her close relative and asking him to redeem her. She is planning and working in accordance with God's ways and purposes and goes to these extreme lengths to try to make that happen. And Boaz honors her faithfulness by saying, I will do for you everything that you asked. But before we start playing the wedding bells and moving along in the story, we find out there's one snag that will need to be dealt with in chapter 4. Boaz is a redeemer, but there's a relative closer. There's a relative who has first rights at redemption. 
But here's where Boaz, too, gets into this righteous scheming. He says, we'll find him in the morning. We'll straighten this out one way or another and get justice for you, Ruth. If he redeems you, great. You will be redeemed. You'll be provided for. You'll find refuge and rest through the Lord's ways and hopefully even children for the family line and name to continue. But if he refuses, I will do it all myself. And we'll see in chapter 4, Boaz's own plan to get in on what God is doing here with Ruth and this family. We'll have to wait till then to find out how things go. But for this week, I want you to see how Naomi and Ruth and Boaz all joined their work to what they believed God was doing. They set out a pattern for us. They prayed to God. Then they set to work. And then they give thanks. They pray and then they work and they give thanks. They pray, they work, and they give thanks. There's no divide for them between what God is doing and what they plan and work toward. Because what they pray for and what they do are the same. They rely upon God and God's faithfulness entirely, but it doesn't lead them to stop working. It leads them deeper into work. It leads them to take greater risk, more daring plans, all in the service of God's will and ways. How did James put it? Faith without works is dead. Faith and works, trusting God to work it out and getting to work ourselves, are joined together in Christ. And if Naomi's right, if this story is right, then this is actually the way to rest, to real rest, to ultimate rest and security, not just material blessing, but to the rest that God alone can give. The rest Naomi prayed for in chapter 1, the rest Naomi plans for in chapter 3, the same rest the psalmist sang of in Psalm 116. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me, I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord protects the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O oh my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. May we never hesitate to ask God for all that we need. May we never pause in the pursuit of God's justice and righteousness in the world. May we join our lives to our prayers and scheme toward God's will and God's ways. May we at last find rest in this God who is at work in and under and through and sometimes even in spite of us, working for our peace and our flourishing. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.